the UK chose to join the invasion of Iraq before the peaceful options for disarmament had been exhausted. Military action at the time was not a last resort. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. If you'd like to support the work we're doing, we are running a big fundraiser this summer. For all of the details and special offers, check it out at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Bradcast, Counterspin, Democracy Now!, The Majority Report, The Young Turks, and The Show. There can be no doubt that Saddam Hussein has biological weapons and the capability to rapidly produce more, many more. We're resting our case on the fact that Saddam Hussein has developed weapons of mass destruction, has them in his possession. The real threat to peace is Saddam Hussein and his possession of weapons of mass destruction. There's a smoking gun and it involves weapons of mass destruction. They have weapons of mass destruction. That is what this war was about. Every statement I make today is backed up by sources, solid sources. These are not assertions. What we're giving you are facts and conclusions based on solid intelligence. The massive and sudden horror. Massive death and destruction. Death on a massive scale. The danger to our country is grave. Keep on rocking me, baby. The Iraqi regime could launch a biological or chemical attack in as little as 45 minutes. Keep on me, baby. The regime is seeking a nuclear bomb and with fissile material could build one within a year. Keep on me, baby. The Iraqi regime possesses biological and chemical weapons. The Iraqi regime is building the facilities necessary to make more biological and chemical weapons. Um, in this speech to Congress, the Prime Minister opened the door to the possibility that you may be proved wrong about the threats from weapons, Iraq weapons of mass destruction. We won't be proven wrong. The Iraq invasion is a good example of Faulkner's line about the past not even being past. Claims about the lead-up to the calamitous 2003 attack, who believed what and when, and even claims about the war's impact on the course of Iraq and U.S. history resurface repeatedly in U.S. political discourse, including in the 2016 presidential election. But is the story we hear about the Iraq war well-grounded in reality? And what does it mean if it isn't? We're joined now by Stephen Zunis. He's a professor of politics and coordinator of Middle Eastern studies at the University of San Francisco. He joins us now by phone from New Zealand. Welcome back to Counterspin, Stephen Zunis. Good to be with you. Well, it seems obvious that we can't 
interpret candidates' ideas about the Iraq invasion and what it might portend about their foreign policy without some baseline understanding of events. But here, U.S. media can be the opposite of useful. Uh, One quick example, FAIR has been getting outlets to correct a claim made by Secretary of State Colin Powell that Saddam Hussein threw out weapons inspectors in 1998 And that made it more difficult for intelligence agencies to get information. The New York Times and others repeat that claim as fact. If they're called on it, they run a correction because, in fact, the inspectors were not kicked out. They were removed in advance of an American bombing campaign. But then my point is, a few months later, the same outlet will make the same false statement or let a politician make it unchallenged. Maybe run a correction, maybe not. And then a few years later, do it all again. It seems to fit the narrative so well that it's not recognized as an obvious and one would say important falsehood. I wonder how much in general do you think that public opinion about the Iraq war has been shaped by incomplete or even inaccurate information? Unfortunately, it has been a major factor in that just as the media twisted the facts in the lead up to the war by not challenging the claims by the Bush administration and their supporters in Congress of this alleged threat. They do not seem to be very responsible in looking at the the history, even now that uh, everyone should know better. I recall in 2008, Hillary Clinton uh, repeated the line that inspectors were thrown out. In fact, it was her husband who ordered them to be removed. And, and indeed, she was unchallenged uh, just a few weeks ago during a town hall meeting in New Hampshire when she claimed that Hans Blix, the head of UNLVIC, the UN inspection regime, had supported the resolution authorizing use of force in Iraq. He'd never done that. He, he did say that the um, United Nations should make clear in uncertain terms that Iraq had to comply with the UN inspectors, and the United Nations did that in UN Security Council Resolution 1441. But he never supported the the idea that the United States should act unilaterally in this way. And yet the statement was pretty much unchallenged, including her claim that she wasn't voting for war, she was only voting for a return of the inspectors, when in fact she voted against the Levin Amendment introduced by the uh, Democratic senator from Michigan uh, that would have authorized force if Saddam Hussein had refused to cooperate with inspectors and the UN authorized military means to enforce that. And instead, she supported the Republican-sponsored resolution that essentially gave President Bush a blank check to invade Iraq at the time and circumstances of his own choosing. Well, I think it can only be possible for politicians or anyone to rewrite their own history on this because there's such a miasma in the public understanding about it. And I can't help but blame media for at least some of that. There's a sense when we look back at the beginning of the this time around the Iraq invasion 2003, that there was something that we all believed. Now, maybe we were mistaken. Maybe history proved us wrong. But there's a line that we all were duped. We all were confused about the reasons uh, for invading Iraq. As someone who wrote 
the case against war, which ran in the nation September 12th, 2002. I just wonder how you make sense of this idea that we all were fooled and what you might tell perhaps some of our younger listeners about the political climate at the time. Well, clearly, I think the media uh, has a motivation to push this line that, oh, we are all fooled uh, because they did such a poor job in challenging the lies of the Bush administration in the lead up to the war. Indeed, there are many of us who were questioning the need for war, the legality of such a war, the rationales uh, that Iraq had the supposed weapons of mass destruction, not to mention uh, the consequences of an invasion, uh, regardless. In in terms of uh, Iraq's military capabilities, we had uh, no less than Scott Ritter, the uh, chief weapons inspector for UNSCOM, the inspection regime, making the case that Iraq had achieved at least qualitative disarmament. He and and others, including those at the uh, Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, the um, Journal Arms Control Today, uh, Institute for Policy Studies, Institute for Global Security Studies, the uh, Croc Center at Notre Dame, other other think tanks, were arguing that while we couldn't rule out the possibility that uh, Iraq had some prescribed materials or, or older weapons you know, stored away somewhere, this idea they had some kind of offensive capability of, of chemical weapons or biological weapons was a total fantasy. Indeed, the International Atomic Energy Agency, as far back as 1999, had said that Iraq's nuclear program was completely eliminated, and given the uh, thoroughness of the sanctions against Iraq, it would have been physically impossible for them to have uh, resumed a nuclear program or even a chemical and biological weapons program. After all, there there was uh, evidence that 95% of their uh, chemical weapons had been accounted for and destroyed, and the remaining 5%, in fact, had been destroyed as well, as we later found out. Indeed, even if they had these chemical weapons, the shelf life uh, is only uh, three years, so they would no longer be a weapons grade. We we argued all these reasons, and and, arms control experts did as as well. This is all public knowledge. And so the sense that everybody thought they had weapons of mass destruction is, uh, again, a, a total fantasy. Well, when we do talk about the weapons of mass destruction, it seems that behind that there's an implicit understanding that if they did have them, that that would on its face justify invasion and and regime change. And I often wonder how foreign policy reporters, what do they think about when they think about international law? Are we not allowed to forget challenging it, just expose this notion and the problematic notion that the United States, among all other countries, has a justification in changing the governments around the world that it doesn't like. That's a very important point. I mean, I keep hearing supporters of Hillary Clinton and other uh, candidates who supported the war saying, oh, it's not her fault. Uh, She thought they had weapons of mass destruction. Well, there are over a dozen countries that have chemical and or biological weapons and even more that have nuclear programs that are capable of having nuclear weapons. There are seven countries that actually have nuclear weapons. Are they saying, therefore, that the United States has the right to invade all of them? Are they saying that some country has the right to invade us because we still have a chemical weapons arsenal, we have nuclear weapons? 
that was the you know, justification for invasion. You'd have uh, nations invading each other all over the place, and uh, it'd be a total breakdown of international law. The United Nations Charter and the uh, Nuremberg Principles are very clear that this kind of aggressive war uh, is, is forbidden. And so it's rather frightening that people are still using this excuse that, oh, we thought we, they had these weapons, therefore we, we have the right to invade. Even if they had had those weapons, the United States and allied countries in the region had you know, more than sufficient deterrent. And this idea that uh, they would somehow pass them on to al-Qaeda, given that al-Qaeda was trying to uh, attack the Iraqi regime, and the Iraqi regime was brutally suppressing any kind of Salafist opposition. Again, that is, it was totally ludicrous. In short, virtually all the rationales you're hearing to this day regarding the uh, justification for the war were false then and continue to be false now. All the soldiers The Iraq War was mounted on flawed intelligence, was executed with wholly inadequate planning, and ended, quote, a long way from success, you think? According to a damning report released Wednesday by the head of Britain's Iraq War inquiry. Retired civil servant Sir John Chilcott, who oversaw the seven-year inquiry, said, quote, the U.K. chose to join the invasion of Iraq before the peaceful options for disarmament had been exhausted. Military action at the time was not a last resort. Kind of knew that, didn't we? The 2.6 million word report is an exhaustive verdict on a divisive conflict, according to AP, that by the time the British combat forces left in 2009, lucky them, uh, that uh, that conflict had killed 179 British troops, almost 4,500 American personnel and more than 100,000 Iraqis. I would say many more than 100,000 Iraqis, uh, if you bother to actually look at what happened. AP writes, it continues to divide Britain and overshadows the legacy of then-Prime Minister Tony Blair. As Chilcott introduced his report at a London conference center on Wednesday, dozens of anti-war protesters uh, held placards reading Blair outside of the, uh, outside of the introduction, outside of the uh, press conference. Chilcott said Blair's government presented an assessment of the threat posed by Saddam Hussein's weapons with, quote, certainty that was not justified. He also found military planning for the war and its aftermath were not up to the task. In a statement responding to this 2.6 million word report, Tony Blair said that he would, quote, take full responsibility for any mistakes without exception or excuse. The decision to go to war in Iraq and to remove Saddam Hussein from power in a coalition of over 40 countries led by the United States of America was the hardest, most momentous, most agonizing decision I took in my 10 years as British Prime Minister. For that decision today, I accept 
full responsibility. Without exception and without excuse. I recognize the division felt by many in our country over the war. And in particular, I feel deeply and sincerely in a way that no words can properly convey the grief and suffering of those who lost ones they loved in Iraq. Whether members of our armed forces, the armed forces of other nations, or Iraqis. The intelligence assessments made at the time of going to war turned out to be wrong. The aftermath turned out to be more hostile, protracted, and bloody than ever we imagined. The coalition planned for one set of ground facts and encountered another. And a nation whose people we wanted to set free and secure from the evil of Saddam became instead victim to sectarian terrorism. For all of this, I express more sorrow, regret, and apology than you may ever know or can believe. Or can believe that was former UK uh, uh, Prime Minister Tony Blair responding to the Chilcot inquiry that uh, the report that is out today, two and a half million words looking at how the UK, how Great Britain ended up in the uh, in the Iraq war. Uh, as you heard Tony Blair there, he was expressing sorrow, regret and apology. But as The Guardian notes, by the end of that uh, press conference today, Blair had delivered a defiant justification of his reasons for taking the UK to war and rejected most of the criticisms contained in the report authored by Sir John Chilcott. Blair insisted, quote, I did not mislead this country. I made the decision in good faith, and I believe it is better we took that decision. I acknowledge the mistakes and accept responsibility for them. What I cannot and will not do is say that we took the wrong decision. As this report makes clear, there were no lies, there were no deceit. There was no deceit. Responding to the criticism that he had not exhausted all of the options before sending in troops, Blair insisted that there was no rush to war, and he asked people to put themselves in his shoes. He said there had appeared to be evidence mounting on weapons of mass destruction, fears of terrorist attacks were growing, and he felt he had a duty to protect the country. Protesters outside of the event held signs uh, that uh, calling him a liar, essentially. Anti-war activists and relatives of some dead British troops had hoped that the report would find the conflict illegal, opening the way for Blair to be prosecuted for war crimes. Chilcott, however, refrained from saying whether the 2003 invasion was legal and didn't accuse Blair of deliberately misleading the public or parliament. But he did say that the circumstances in which it was decided that there was a legal basis for U.K. military action were far from satisfactory. Uh, relatives of soldiers killed in the conflict said that they still had not ruled out legal action. All options are open, said Matthew Jury, a lawyer for some of the families. In a statement, a group of families said, quote, we must use this report to make sure all parts of the Iraq fiasco are never repeated again. 
Chilcott, in the report, heard from 150 witnesses, analyzed 150,000 documents. His conclusions are a blow to Blair, says AP, who told President George W. Bush eight months before the March 2000 invasion without uh, consulting government colleagues that, quote, I will be with you whatever. That was uh, uh, just one of the many things we have learned uh, from this report, including, by the way, how Tony Blair sucked up to George W. Bush throughout the process, both before and after the war. Uh, this, uh, this report includes a bunch of letters from Tony Blair to George W. Bush, though it does not include George W. Bush's responses uh, to those notes. A couple of them uh, that uh, caught David Korn's eye over at Mother Jones were kind of interesting. In the, uh, in the early uh, notes, this is before the invasion, Blair tried to nudge Bush into seeking a U.N. resolution that would more or less provide a green light for the military action. Blair needed this at home for political purposes and was seeking U.N. buy-in for the post-invasion period as well. So in uh, January of 2004, this would be just before we ended up going to war uh, a month or two later, Tony Blair wrote to... um, Tony Blair wrote to George W. Bush, quote, the biggest risk we face is internecine fighting between all the rival groups, religions, tribes, etc. in Iraq when the military strike destabilizes the regime. They are perfectly capable on previous form of killing each other in large numbers. We will need the backing of the international community and preferably the U.N. to handle it. We will get the blame for any fighting without it. Well, he did not, in fact, get that U.N. Uh, uh, approval. And in fact, uh, Blair was prescient. In fact, there was chaos after the invasion. And uh, noting the need for international support to prevent this in that letter, he was completely ignored by the George W. Bush administration, it would seem. Blair uh, nonetheless proceeded with the invasion of Iraq without U.N. backing. Afterwards, Blair then worried that he and Bush were indeed in trouble in Iraq. Oh, do you think? On June 2, after touring Iraq, uh, according to the report, uh, he wrote to Bush, quote, The task is absolutely awesome, and I'm not sure we're geared for it. This is worse than rebuilding a country from scratch. We start from a really backward position. In time, it can be sorted out. But time counts against us as a because the Iraqis are impatient and don't yet see uh, and don't yet see clear improvement, though plainly delighted at Saddam's departure. And B, because if there is any vacuum, clerics, Iran, anyone bad wants to fill it. That was a June 2 of 2003 warning that if there's any vacuum, clerics, Iran, anyone bad wants to fill it. Tony Blair writing to George W. Bush. Of course, uh, someone has wanted to fill it, and I would say the uh, Islamic State is filling it very well at this point. People say protest songs, try to stop the soldiers' gun. Protest songs, irresponsibility. 
Well, I'd like to ask Tarek Ali uh, your response to the report, especially the sections that talk about Blair's uh, almost obsession with regime change, with getting rid of uh, Saddam Hussein. And also, why did it take seven years to produce this report? It took seven. <clears throat> it took seven years because it uh, it took seven years because every single person interviewed had to have a chance to see the report, and Blair and his lawyers were looking at the fine print very closely, as were the generals and other people. Uh, the findings of the report, quite honestly, are not very remarkable or original. As Sami has already said, these were things that were being said by all of us before this uh, war started. It was what virtually every speaker said at the Million Strong Stop the War demonstration in London. Tony Benn and Jeremy Corbyn in particular have been saying all this. So to have official confirmation that what we were all saying was right is nice, but it's too little and too late. And because the report had no uh, desire or was not permitted to discuss the legality of this exercise, <clears throat> it means that while there is evidence in the report for independent lawyers to proceed and file a citizen suit, uh, the report itself doesn't allow the state to actually prosecute Blair for war crimes. He is a war criminal. He pushed the country into this illegal war. His supporters in Parliament are trying to get rid of Jeremy Corbyn, who was 100 percent right on this war, backed by the bulk of the media. So we're in a strange situation now. Um, the report, I think, will anger lots of people who, unlike us, were not convinced by the movement that what was taking place was a lie, based on a lie, and it was illegal. What is going to happen now remains to be seen, but I would very much hope that uh, independent groups of lawyers and jurists demand now that Blair is charged and tried. It's very clear he pushed the war, he forced uh, the intelligence services to prepare dodgy dossiers. Uh, he pushed his attorney general to changing his opinions before he was allowed to address the cabinet. All that we have in the report. The question is, is anyone going to answer for it or is this just designed to be therapeutic? And Tarek, about this whole issue of the uh the Labour leadership in Parliament trying to remove Jeremy Corbyn, even though he was one of the most vocal anti-war uh, advocates, uh, and even though the base, the, the majority base of the Labour Party uh, still supports him. Well, I mean, it's bizarre. I, you know, some people uh, said to me that the reason they tried this coup against Jeremy in Parliament was so he wasn't leader of the Labour Party when the Chilcot report came out. We'll see what he says today at his press conference in three or four hours' time. But I think he will be very harsh. The irony is that the woman who is the main candidate against him is a supporter of the Iraq war. Now that we have a judicial inquiry which says what it says about the war, I think surely it's time that constituency Labour parties 
started the process of removing some of the chief warmongers from parliament. They don't represent anyone now except a cabinet in the past, a government which went to war. And if you look at some of the footage being shown on Channel 4, uh, uh, today, what Corbyn said, what Ben said, with what Blair said, mean the utter complacency and brutality with which Blair told Parliament, there are some people here who think that regime change is wrong. And Gordon Brown nodding vigorously and Margaret Beckett on the other side. These are all the people involved in trying to get rid of Jeremy Corbyn. And something, you know, I hope Labour members uh, will now fight back because it's precisely against this sort of thing that uh, uh, Corbyn has been fighting the right inside the Labour Party. I'm your masters of war Here that build the big guns Here that build the death planes Here that build all the bombs Here that hide behind walls Here that hide behind discs I just don't want you to know I can see through your masks You that never done nothing But built to destroy You play with my world Like it's your little toy So we started with the Chilcot Report, which was an official government investigation that took seven years to complete of the UK's role in the invasion of Iraq and specifically Tony Blair's role as the leader who helped along with, you know, was the sort of driver of the invasion along with George W. Bush, obviously. The report was devastating, um, as devastating as a report like that is going to be. And before we get to, we'll, we'll touch on Blair, but we're going to start with Jeremy Corbyn, who is the current leader of the Labour Party. That's Tony Blair's party. And there has been a active drive to depose him following the EU uh, referendum vote. And I think we can see by this response to the Chilcot report that he gave in the House of Commons that this desire to get him out might have had a bit more to do with him not delivering this speech. So let's play this sound and then I'll get your thoughts on it, Ari. The war was not in any way, as Sir John Chilcot says, a last resort. Frankly, it was an act of military aggression launched on a false pretext as the inquiry accepts and has long been regarded as illegal by the overwhelming weight of international legal opinion. It led to the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people and the displacement of millions of refugees. It devastated Iraq's infrastructure and society. The occupation fostered a lethal sectarianism as the report indicates, that turned into a civil war. Instead of protecting security at home or abroad, the war fueled and spread terrorism across the region. It's led to a fundamental breakdown in trust in politics and in our institutions of government. The tragedy is that while the governing class got it so horrifically wrong, many people, many of our people, actually got it right. Many on February the 15th, 2003, one and a half million, spanning the entire political spectrum, and tens of millions of other people across the world 
marched against the impending war. The biggest ever demonstration in British history. All those who took the decisions laid bare in the Chilcot report must face up to the consequences of their actions, whatever they may be. Later today, I'll be meeting a group of families of military servicemen and women who lost loved ones, Iraq war veterans and Iraqi citizens who've lost family members as a result of the war that the US and British governments launched in 2003. I'll be discussing with them, our public and the Iraqi people, the decisions taken by our then government that led the country into war with the terrible consequences. Quite bluntly, Mr Speaker, there are huge lessons for every single one of us here today. We make decisions that have consequences that don't just go on for the immediate years, they go on for decades and decades afterwards. We need to reflect very seriously before we take any decisions, again, to take military action without realising the consequences of those will live with all of us for many decades to come and have often incalculable consequences as a result. And it's so weird, Ari, because I had heard that Jeremy Corbyn was an anti-Semitic Stalinist. But uh, I, I want your, your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the recent uh, push to depose Corbyn, the failed push, we should, we should underscore, um, he really is one of the only uh, British party leaders continuing to stand tall in the whole Brexit campaign. Right. The, the, this push, you know, isn't just because of Brexit. In fact, that's a fairly superficial way to look at it. There's been a huge, I mean, almost existential crisis within the Labour Party um, with the rise of Corbyn. When Corbyn um, put himself in the running, there was a slew of articles in the in the British press about how the, from from the Labour Centre, in order you know, the the necessity to keep Corbyn out to keep the old left. Of the Labour Party from coming, you know, to an ascendance, and a lot of that has to do, of course, with the ideological centering of the party. But a lot of it does have to do with the uh, the examination of the Labour Party and particularly Tony Blair's role in the Iraq War. Um, you know, as uh, Mr. Corbyn said in that speech, we don't know exactly what the consequences for. Um, the people who perpetrated this war are going to be at the very worst. There could be war crimes, uh, you know, charges, which there are some of the British press who speculate that the coup against Corbyn was less to do with Brexit and more to do with protecting uh, any legal action that could come uh, Tony Blair's way, or at the very least uh, to protect him from his lasting legacy as someone who uh, forced a deadly, horrible, costly war onto the British people through lies. So it is a protection effort on the behalf of Blair's allies and for him, um, but also very much to keep the ideological wing of the party centered to where he brought it in the uh, in the 90s. I never knew the desert could be so high. And all this heavy equipment was caused. Hi, I'm Johnny Five from the band Flowbots. As you can imagine, almost everything Donald Trump says I disagree with. But there is one thing he's been saying that I do agree with. He's been calling out former President George W. Bush for lying about WMDs and Iraq. They lied. They said there were weapons of mass destruction. There were none. And they knew there were none. 
Predictably, the right-wing echo chamber has been going ballistic. Outrage that Trump would suggest at a Republican debate, no less, that George W. Bush had any idea before the war that Iraq had no WMDs. So what's the truth? Did the Bush administration knowingly lie to the American people in order to lead us into preemptive war? According to a recent piece by John Schwartz in The Intercept, the answer is an unequivocal yes. The article describes the unusual case of Saddam Hussein's son-in-law, Hussein Kamel. In the 1980s, Kamel was a part of Saddam's inner circle and ran the Iraqi WMD program that thrived during the Iran-Iraq war. After the 1991 Gulf War, Iraq had been driven out of Kuwait and a strict UN sanctions regime was put in place to disarm Iraq of all WMDs. By 1995, Kamel had grown unhappy with Saddam's rule and he defected to Jordan. There he revealed to the UN, the International Atomic Energy Agency and the CIA that Iraq had in fact disarmed. In 1996, Kamel made the ill-advised decision to return to Iraq, where he was promptly assassinated. Kamel's testimony by itself proves nothing. After all, as a defector, he might say anything to curry favor with Saddam's enemies, right? But the CIA certainly took him seriously. In January 2002, the CIA, looking into allegations about Saddam's WMDs, produced a senior executive memorandum discussing, quote, the value of Kamel's information. Yet, just eight months later, in August of 2002, Vice President Dick Cheney made a speech where he said the following, We now know that Saddam has resumed his efforts to acquire nuclear weapons. Among other sources, we've gotten this from the first-hand testimony of defectors, including Saddam's own son-in-law, Hussein Kamel. Cheney suggested that Kamel had confirmed Saddam's nuclear weapons program, when in fact Kamel had said the exact opposite. In subsequent weeks, Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld, Secretary of State Colin Powell, and President Bush himself all cited Kamel in making the case for the Iraq War. Whatever other dubious evidence they used to lead the nation to war, about aluminum tubes or anything else, there is no question that top officials in the Bush administration knowingly misrepresented what Hussein Kamel told the CIA. So, while on any number of other issues, Donald Trump is completely full of it, on the question of whether the Bush administration knowingly lied to lead us into war, Donald Trump is, unfortunately, dead right. I can ride my bike with no handlebars, no handlebars, no handlebars. I can ride my bike with no handlebars, no handlebars, no handlebars. Each year I raise money for 350.org and my old stomping grounds, the Chesapeake Climate Action Network, to help them in their missions to fight climate change on the local and international levels. I do this through Climate Ride. Basically, I ride my bike hundreds of miles, and you're so impressed by my dedication that you decide to donate to the cause. So this year I've set a goal for my team of $5,500. That's for myself and my brother who's joining in on this year's ride. At the moment, I'm right on track to hit that goal by the deadline. We're approaching the halfway mark in both donations and in time available. So that means we just have to keep the momentum going. And to sweeten the deal, I've turned this into a two-in-one fundraiser with a limited time offer for anyone who makes a tax-deductible donation of $25 or more to my climate ride and signs up as a member of the show, contributing as little as 6 bucks a month. 
If you do one or the other, then you have my undying gratitude. But if you do both, then you have my gratitude and one of our excellent best of left t-shirts or hoodies made from 100% recycled materials by Repair the World Custom Apparel. For details, just go to bestofleft.com and click on the big summer fundraiser banner where you will be directed on how to contribute to the climate ride, sign up as a member, and submit your thank you gift t-shirt order. Thanks so much for your support. I have it all in my command because I can guide a missile by satellite, by satellite, by satellite. And I can hit a target through a telescope, through a telescope, through a telescope. But we're going to turn right now to Oxford in Britain. Tarek Ramadan is professor of contemporary Islamic studies at Oxford University, author of a number of influential books on Islam in the West, including Western Muslims and the Future of Islam, and In the Footsteps of the Prophet, Lessons from the Life of Muhammad. Ramadan was named by Time magazine as one of the most important innovators of the 21st century. Under the Bush administration, he was not allowed to come into the United States, where he was invited to teach at Notre Dame University. Uh, Tarek Ramadan now teaches at Oxford. Professor Ramadan, your response to the Chilkut report, the attacks in Iraq, and then we'll move to Saudi Arabia and the ISIS attacks this weekend there. Look, I think that what we heard from uh, Tariq Ali and Sami Ramadani, these are important points that it's very true that uh, what uh, happened there and what is happening now is connected to policies that were decided in Washington and decided in London which had nothing to do with human rights, had nothing to do with freedom and democracy. It was all about interest and geostrategic interest. And if we go for it, we understand that the war was launched for very, very, in fact, uh, uh, geostrategic and economic interest and had nothing to do with the dignity. So now we know that, and things are happening now, that are showing how much uh, or how many contradictions we had in the British policies following in the footsteps of the American policy in the region. And then uh, the connection that we have here with Saudi Arabia as an ally in the region and, and the mess that we have now in the new Middle East is all to, uh, has to do with some of the reasons that we they were talking about right now. And, 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 and we cannot disconnect this from that. If we do this, we are completely uh, misled. And we can end up with what is happening in Saudi Arabia with the, uh, the attacks uh, uh, during the last days by supporting the regime and not understanding that uh, it's uh, much more complex than that. Also clarified by the Chilcot Report, this official independent kind of report on the causes and aftermath of the decision to invade Iraq. Something clarified, which may be of interest to people on both sides of the pond. The government's 
the Blair government, the Bush government, when uh, it was discovered there weren't weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, blamed faulty intelligence. And yet, in the United States, Britain, and Australia, high-ranking intelligence officials in the non-proliferation area said before the war publicly that what was being told to the public did not reflect the intelligence they were seeing. So a, a glimmer of information as to how to put these two facts together. According to the Financial Times, the Chilcot Report criticized the way the British version of the CIA, MI6, headed by Sir Richard Dearlove, handled its responsibilities. The Secret Intelligence Service, which is its other name, had a responsibility to ensure that ministers were informed in a timely way when doubts arose about key sources and when subsequently intelligence was withdrawn, unquote, and they didn't do that. In the United States, as you may remember, there was a separate vector for raw intelligence, the Office of Special Plans in the Pentagon, run by Douglas Fife. It was a Fife-based operation whose sole purpose was to gather raw information outside the analytical eyes of the CIA and pass it straight upstairs to where the guys wanted to know that there was intelligence, intelligence that supported their policies. The new Iraq, ladies and gentlemen, a trillion dollar bargain. Secretary of State uh, John Kerry flew into Baghdad today on a surprise visit amid increasing protests over government corruption. Iraq's prime minister, Haider al-Abadi, has vowed to replace most of his cabinet following weeks of demonstrations. This comes amidst an ongoing airstrike campaign backing the Iraq military's attempts to retake control of Mosul from ISIL militants. Kerry uh, just met with the Iraqi prime minister. Mr. Minister, I'm happy to visit with you again. This is obviously a very critical time here in Iraq and in the region. And you and I have been working on a lot of different issues uh, for the last few years, so it's good to come and be able to visit. On Tuesday, President Obama announced he's exploring new ways to scale up the battle against ISIS in Syria and Iraq. You're working to make sure that we're accelerating the campaign against ISIL. In Syria and Iraq, ISIL continues to lose ground. Coalition forces recently severed the main highway between ISIL strongholds in Raqqa, Syria, uh, and uh, Mosul in Iraq. And we continue to take on their leadership, their financial networks, their infrastructure. We are going to squeeze them, and we will defeat them. Uh, 
But as we've seen from Turkey to Belgium, uh, ISIL still has the ability to launch serious terrorist attacks. Uh, one of my main messages today is that destroying ISIL continues to be my top priority. This will continue to be a difficult fight, uh, but I'm absolutely confident that ISIL will lose. We will prevail. We will prevail. Those were the words of President Obama on Tuesday. Nearly a decade ago, in December 2006, President George W. Bush said those same three words in another address on the fight in Iraq. I also believe we're going to succeed. I believe we'll prevail. Not only do I know how important it is to prevail, I believe we will prevail. I understand how hard it is to prevail. But I also want the American people to understand that if we were to fail, and one way to assure failure is just to quit, is not to adjust and say it's just not worth it. If we were to fail, that failed policy will come to hurt generations of Americans in the future. We will prevail. That was George W. Bush in 2006. His father, President George H.W. Bush, used the same phrase 25 years ago, January 1991, when he announced the U.S. had begun attacking Iraq to begin what became known as the Persian Gulf War. But even as planes of the multinational forces attack, attack Iraq, I prefer to think of peace, not war. I am convinced not only that we will prevail, but that out of the horror of combat will come the recognition that no nation can stand against a world united. We will prevail. Three words said by three presidents, all addressing U.S. wars in Iraq dating back a quarter century. The seemingly never-ending U.S. war in the Middle East is the subject of a new book by retired Army Colonel Andrew Basevich titled America's War for the Greater Middle East, A Military History. In the book, Basevich argues the United States has been involved in gigantic failed war with the Middle East since the 1980s that continues today with no end in sight. In this new book, Andrew Basevich writes, quote, as an American who cares deeply about the fate of his country, I should state plainly my own assessment of this ongoing war now well into its fourth decade. We have not won it. We are not winning it. Simply trying harder is unlikely to produce a different outcome. Andrew Basevich is professor emeritus of international relations and history at Boston University, also author of several other books, including Washington Rules, America's Path to Permanent War. His son was killed in action in Iraq in 2007. Professor Basevich, welcome back to Democracy Now! It's great Thank to have you. you with us. Thank you. We will prevail, George H.W. Bush. We will prevail, his son, George W. Bush. We will prevail, President Obama. Have we prevailed in any way? Well, we haven't. I have to say those are exquisitely chosen uh, clips uh, because they really do illustrate uh, what's the point of, of my book. And that is that uh, we have been engaged militarily uh, in the greater Middle East, large parts of the Islamic world, for going on four decades. We've engaged in innumerable interventions, large, small, brief, uh, protracted, uh, and we have yet uh, to come anywhere close to achieving our aims. Whether, whether, whether we define our aims as restoring stability or promoting democracy or uh, reducing the, uh, uh, the prevalence of anti-Americanism, it's not happening, and arguably, our military efforts are actually making things worse. 
Well, interestingly, uh, as you point out, uh, before 1980, virtually no American soldier had ever been killed in any kind of military action in that part of the world. And since 1980, very few have been killed who were not in that part of the world. Uh, how, this shift that occurred uh, from the Middle East being largely an area of influence or control by the European colonial powers to the United States exercising such a huge role, how did that happen? Well, uh, we Americans have forgotten, uh, uh, but prior to the beginning of the Cold War, the United States was not a great military power. Uh, we raised forces from time to time to deal with some particular issue, but it was in the wake of the Cold War that we, we as a nation decided on a permanent basis to maintain a large military establishment. For the first several decades of that Cold War, the United States had two priorities. We were willing to fight for Western Europe. We were willing to fight, did fight uh, in, in East Asia. We were not willing to fight uh, for the Middle East. That changes in 1980, specifically a particular moment in January of 1980, when President Jimmy Carter, in his State of the Union address, promulgates what's known as the Carter Doctrine. Well, I think we actually have a clip on that. We'd like to go to that now. This is Jimmy Carter, January 23rd, 1980, delivering the State of the Union address. You mentioned and laying out what would later become known as the Carter Doctrine. Let our position be absolutely clear. An attempt by any outside force to gain control of the Persian Gulf region will be regarded as an assault on the vital interest of the United States of America. And such an assault will be repelled by any means necessary, including military force. The importance of what happened uh, after that uh, enunciation of the Carter Doctrine. Well, one of, the, one of the things to appreciate, I think, is that Carter himself had no understanding of the implications that would flow from that statement. Uh, what, 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 what happens on an immediate basis is that the national security bureaucracy now redefines its priorities and begins to orient itself toward the possibility of armed intervention by U.S. forces in the region. And over the course of the next 10 years, that process begins. Uh, uh, Reagan sending peacekeepers into, into uh, Lebanon. Uh, the initial jousting with uh, uh, Colonel Gaddafi in, in Libya. Support for Saddam Hussein, of all people, in what I refer to as the first Gulf War. That's the Gulf War of 1980 to 88 pitting Iraq against Iran with the United States coming to the aid of, of Iraq. So Carter starts the process of militarizing U.S. policy, which uh, over time uh, deepens, uh, becomes more frequent, becomes more ambitious, and becomes more more costly, uh, bringing us to where we are today in 2016, where we continue to hear these speeches by presidents who insisting insisting that we will prevail when obviously we have not. Your book has sort of the the epic scope of pulling everything together that, for instance, uh, Jurgen's book, The Prize, has in terms of focusing in on the importance of oil in all this. Could you? Talk about that as well. Well, the, the war for the greater Middle East did begin as a war for oil. <clears throat> I mean, the, the, the proximate uh, trigger of Carter's uh, speech 
was the uh, Iranian Revolution, uh, which had produced a second oil shock of the 1970s, combined with the Soviet uh, intervention in Afghanistan, which in Washington raised uh, fears that, uh, I mean, there are bizarre notions, but raised fears that the Soviets were going to march across Iran and and attack Saudi Arabia. So, so at a time when we were increasingly dependent upon foreign oil to include oil from the Persian Gulf, uh, yes, we decided to, to, to fight for the region. But, but I argue that there really was much more at stake than simply access to oil. Uh, that in the context of the times, uh, the, the, the war for the greater Middle East really becomes an effort to refute the notion that the United States is a country that has to take, to, to, to accept limits, to affirm the claim of American exceptionalism, of our uniqueness, of our, of our special status in history and in the world at large. I wanted to go back to September 18th, 2001, then-Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld holding a Pentagon briefing where he tells reporters how war against terrorist targets would differ from conventional war. This is an excerpt. We have a choice, either to change the way we live, which is unacceptable, uh, or to change the way that they live, and we have—we chose the latter. We intend to put them on the defensive— to disrupt terrorist networks and remove their sanctuaries and their support systems. This requires a distinctly different approach from any war that we have fought before. So assess what he said and go back to what you referenced at the beginning. You're saying our presence in Iraq right now in the Middle East is worsening the situation. There's no question about it. Uh, that's a, that is a wonderful clip. I think that is in, in in a sense, the most important, the most telling, the most instructive a quote from a U.S. government official to understand the path that we have hollowed. Now, now prior to 9-11, I don't believe that presidents and policymakers actually had a clear understanding of what they wanted to do in the greater Middle East. They somehow assumed that the presence of U.S. forces or introduction of U.S. forces would have some kind of a positive effect. It's after 9-11 that Rumsfeld and those around him, the president, uh, Cheney, uh, Wolfowitz, embarked upon this massively ambitious strategy to change the way they live. You'll notice that he really doesn't specify who they are. I think by implication, they are large numbers of inhabitants of the Islamic world. We're going to change the way they live to make them live the way we live with the expectation that, therefore, they will no longer pose a threat. Informing that ambition, of course, is a estimate of, of American military capacity that assumes that we cannot be defeated, or more to the point, that we can, that we can and will prevail militarily. That's the thinking that, of course, then informs uh, the decision to invade Iraq in 2003. We just heard clips featuring the Bradcast, who put together that original montage of the Bush administration defending their push for war. Counterspin talked with Stephen Zunes about the rewriting of the history of the Iraq war. The Bradcast broke down the most important highlights of the Chilcot Report. 
Democracy Now! spoke with Tariq Ali about Tony Blair's role in pushing the UK into an illegal war. The Majority Report played and discussed part of Jeremy Corbyn's speech in response to the Chilcot Report. Johnny Five from the Flowbots broke down the John Schwartz piece from The Intercept that confirms the Bush administration lied about WMD in Iraq. Democracy Now! got Tariq Ramadan's take on the motivations behind the Iraq War. Harry Shearer on the show discussed the manipulations of intelligence leading up to the war and then played the song Trillion Dollar Bargain. And finally, we just heard Democracy Now! lay out the history of our last three presidents who all promised us that we would prevail in Iraq. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hello, Jay. This is V from Central New York, right outside of Syracuse, actually. I've called before. Um, I'm listening to episode 1029 on um, uh, the police shootings of Philando Castile and Alton Sterling and, of course, then the Dallas shooting. And I wanted to make make a couple of comments on the Dallas shooting. Uh, I've been listening to a lot of progressive and uh, liberal talk shows about this a specific incident. And something that I notice is most of the people talking about it, they don't seem to realize how logical this progression was and how not insane this man was. I have also been listening to a number of individuals who are outside of the progressive and liberal realm of thought, I guess. Um, black individuals who actually had communiques with this man. And what is noted over and over again about this individual who, who, who allegedly shot these cops is how rational he was. Now, I've studied Dr. King, and I have studied him so intently that I can quote speeches that most people don't know exist. But Dr. King warned America. He said to them in 1967 that the incidences of riots was only the outermost expression of the frustrations which were being expressed and truthfully which were much more uh, larger than most white people wanted to admit on the inside of black people and on the inside of the black community. This individual who who allegedly shot these cops, he reasoned, and he reasoned rightfully, that justice was pleading for black people when it came to mistreatment, not murder, but mistreatment by the police. Most progressives and, and, and liberals, they consistently paint this as a stop killing black people type type of a problem. It's not that. It is that cops do not respect black people and have for many, many years mistreated us. Most liberals and progressives do not talk about what happened in Chicago and the black sites that were uncovered and the torture that was taking place for decades. And guess what? It didn't only happen there. This individual looked at all of this and said, I'm done. I'm done. They don't they don't they understand nothing but violence. 
insult, he went after them with the language that they understood. Whether or not I believe that what he did was right, I understand why he did it. Now, this frightens liberals and progressives because the real world is that this country and its mechanisms, both internal and external, speak in violence. And this individual, who obviously had military training, understood this. And so, and so he spoke. He spoke to the police in the only language that they seemed to understand, which was violence. Now, we can say, well, they were protecting a protest. They were this. They were that. That's an outermost expression of something that I guarantee was a lot worse on the inside. I understand there were changes being made. I get that. But I've also talked to individuals who have lived down there. And there were some things that were improving, absolutely. But the corruption was not gone. So, this is stuff that you guys got to think about more. Anyway, thank you. Uh, the episode was great. <laughs> and um, I'm, I, I'm catching up right now. So, uh, uh, maybe I'll be calling back. Peace. Keep up the good work. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Thanks also to Magoosh for sponsoring today's episode. They're bringing standardized test prep into the 21st century by offering affordable and effective test prep that is 100% online. You can log in anytime, anywhere, on your computer, tablet, phone, whatever, to study when you want, where you want. They provide online test prep for a wide range of abbreviations, including the GRE, GMAT, LSAT, SAT, ACT, TOEFL, and Praxis. They also offer friendly email support from their team of expert tutors for when you get stuck on a problem or concept, and their test prep starts at under $100. Plus, they guarantee you'll improve your score or they'll give you your money back. Join the 1.5 million students who have chosen Magoosh. Go to Magoosh, that's M-A-G-O-O-S-H dot com right now and get 20% off with the code LEFT at checkout. Prep smart, go far, enjoy the ride. And that's not all. Still so many more people to thank. Quick update on the Climate Ride fundraiser. I want to thank uh, the new newest set of donors who have brought us uh, past the $2,000 mark. Uh, we're about 2200 somewhere in that range. Huge thanks to Catherine, Mary, Alejandro, Yvonne, two anonymous donors, David, Greg, Amber, and Karen. Huge thanks to everyone who is continuing to keep that momentum going. Uh, we got a ways to go, but we got some time to do it. So it's still not time to panic, but it is definitely time to uh, keep those donations coming in. Thanks to everyone for their support. And then finally, I have some thoughts today. I, I am in Philadelphia for the Democratic National Convention. It it's pretty near to where I live, and I have a friend who had a spare bedroom. So uh, the, the money was right, and I thought I should go. I got to check out what's going on. 
And I don't have press credentials to get in. Uh, I, I maybe could have thought further ahead and, and tried to get those, but didn't work out that way. So I've been stuck outside, which has been interesting. Uh, there was a giant, giant protest at City Hall on the first day of the convention. And then, of course, continued protests right outside of the Wells Fargo Center where the actual, uh, you know, big convention is taking place. And a- as you would expect, there are a lot of people here with a lot of very legitimate anger. You know, first of all, you know, if they're Bernie supporters, like, well, their candidate didn't win, and that totally sucks. Uh, a corporate friendly candidate who promises a lot of status quo did win, and that also sucks. And then the DNC was proven to be working against Bernie Sanders uh, while all the, you know, all the while claiming to be neutral. Uh, which it never seemed like they were neutral, and now it's proven that they clearly weren't. That completely sucks. And then, of course, a lot of them are also mad that Sanders is now supporting Clinton. And my take on that is that anyone who is mad about that particular thing simply hasn't been paying attention. Bernie said that he would do exactly what he is doing now over a year ago. And, you know, his honesty is one of the things that people love so much about him— And so they should not be surprised about this. He said he was going to do this, and now he's doing it. If you feel betrayed in some way, it simply means you weren't listening closely enough. Uh, Now, I watched these protesters a bit, and honestly, it seemed a little bit like watching someone go through a bad detox, uh, which I've never done personally, but I have seen train spotting. And, And I think I've said this before. You know, I don't, I don't like talking about the election very much, uh, doing a lot of election coverage because it literally makes me feel a bit nauseous. And, you know, I thought at first that it was just sort of the endless horse race stuff, the sort of mindless who's up, who's down, uh, that I really didn't like. But I think it's deeper than that. It's the people who fall so in love with a candidate, whichever candidate that is that they completely lose sight of reality. That also makes me a little nauseous. So in in this past week, just a couple of examples, uh, I've heard uh, Hillary Clinton supporters defend her vote for the Iraq war and Bernie Sanders supporters completely dismiss uh, this new poll that came out recently saying that about 90% of Sanders supporters are already planning on supporting Clinton in the general election. Like I said, so just two examples of many, but it seems clear that the more a person gets attached to a specific politician, the less they are able to hold on to the reality that they would otherwise be able to believe in, you know? Like it should be okay to be supportive of Clinton in this election while being able to acknowledge that a vote for the Iraq war was a terrible thing. And one should also be able to uh, be in the hashtag never Hillary, hashtag still Sanders camp if you want, while still understanding that it's a very small minority of Sanders supporters who agree with you on that strategy. And I've heard people say, they just like, oh, well, that poll is clearly not true. They made it up. They're trying to manipulate us or whatever. And, and they they dismiss it as being obviously false when I don't think there's any reason to think that it's false. I think uh, history and political science and understanding of voting patterns shows that it's very likely that a huge percentage of Sanders supporters are going to support Hillary Clinton. Now, to be clear, 
I am completely in favor of people being strongly supportive of one candidate over another. I'm not saying that everyone's the same or that it doesn't matter or that everyone should just calm down. Strong, active supporters are absolutely vital to the success of political campaigns and strongly progressive politicians are absolutely vital to passing desperately needed legislation on any number of topics. So I'm completely in favor of people being involved and excited and motivated. I'm just saying that for your own mental health and the health of the debate that we have throughout elections, don't get so high on a candidate that you lose track of reality and run the risk of crashing horribly after an election curled up in the fetal position with a vomit bucket next to your bed. That's all I'm saying. Keep your comments coming in. I'd love to hear them. 202-999-3991. Just a heads up that I do not expect to be able to get out a brand new episode this coming Friday because I'm here at the convention and things are just completely hectic. I would rather be here absorb what's going on and be able to tell you about it uh, all in due time rather than try to frantically make a show while missing out on all of the activities going on. So just a heads up on that for this coming Friday. Uh, But that is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we put out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained